to Philippians. We've arrived chapter 3 this morning. I'm probably more excited than, than you are. Uh, I told several this week, I am so glad that I'm done with Timothy and Epaphroditus. Just difficult, difficult sections to really preach. Historically interesting, difficult to preach and apply and to help. And if you have been helped by my messages the last several weeks, it's God's grace in my life. Well, I want to read the first three verses. I want to pray and then we'll dig into our text. Philippians chapter 3, we're just going to go 1 through 3 this morning. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So let's pray. Lord, I I pray that that you might be with us now, even as the words of song we just sung. Speak, O Lord. God, just illumine the truth. Cause our eyes to see. Cause our hearts to understand and our minds to comprehend. Lord, I know that, God, apart from your working in our life, We will not understand these things I I speak today. And yet with You, Lord, I I know that we can know all things. So I I pray, Lord, that You would show great grace right now to me. Show great grace to all of us here in this room. God, to catch a a greater glimpse of You than we've ever seen before. God, I I pray that You'd lift us up into the heavenlies as we deal with Your Word. And that we indeed would be those who are of the true circumcision. God, help us to see Christ in all His glory and to rest and trust in Him today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you look at this text, the first word really stands out to me. And it's the word, finally. Now, Why would that word stand out to me? Audience participation time. Why might that word stand out to me? Anyone have an idea? Yeah, you think he's going to end the letter, right? When he hits finally, but you know what? He's only 60% through. Two chapters, but chapter 1 and 2 are a little bigger. 60% through. He's got 40% more to go. And he says, finally... It, uh, I remember the story of the grandfather who one time wasn't really a church-going man so much, but a little bit, but brought his grandson to church for the very first time. And as they walked in the building, everything was new and the, the grandson's looking all around trying to figure everything out. And pretty soon the worship leader stands up front and everyone stood with him and, and the little boy said, Grandpa, what does that mean? And Grandpa says, that means we're going to sing. And so they sang and they sat down and did some other things. And midway through the service, four men walked to the front and and, and had these plates given to them. 
And the, the grandson turned to his dad, his grandpa shugged his shirt and said, Grandpa, what does that mean? He says, it means we're going to give our offering. And then the preacher got up from his chair, stood at the pulpit, this older preacher, he put on his glasses, and, and the child said, Grandpa, what does that mean? It means the preacher is getting ready to read the Scriptures. And then the preacher preached along for a while and he, he took off his coat. And the little boy said, Grandpa, what does that mean? And Grandpa says, it means the preacher is now really, really preaching. About an hour later, the pastor took off his watch, placed it on the pulpit so he could see his time, and said, finally, brethren. And the little boy tugged on his grandpa and said, Grandpa, Grandpa, what does that mean? Not a thing, boy. Not a thing. <laughs> In many ways, Paul is just like that preacher. He says, finally, and then, then goes on. Now, and Paul didn't have a word processor. He didn't go back and edit over his words. What God gave to Paul, how this worked, I don't exactly sure, but first, Second Timothy 1 says that men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So Paul, as he wrote, was moved by God to, to write, and yet using Paul's own intellect and mind and personality was writing these things down. After writing them down, he didn't go back and say, oh, I'd like to change that word. I'd like to change... Finally, to further. Maybe we can read further. That would be better. Um, in fact, that's what the NIV does. But he didn't. He, finally is what he wrote. And uh, we do that all the time with our conversations, don't we? Like we think we're having a conversation and then, and then we, we, we think we're done. And then something else comes back and then we, we carry on for a bit, right? We, we, we think we're done. We're finally. And, and we're not. You know, we had the Wooldridge family over this week. And... Um, I think by the time they said, you know, it's time for us to go. And by the time you left, it was about an hour. Now, that's not a bad thing, okay? I, I'm, I, we, we delighted in your company. It was great to have you. Uh, but I'm just saying that that's, um, that's typical. We do that. Or someone calls up. Got a minute? It means 20 sometimes, sometimes an hour. We don't know. I know it happens when I'm writing an email. And I can go back and edit, but sometimes if someone asks me a question, particularly a Bible question, I get kind of long-winded on that. And often, whenever I write at the bottom, phew, that means it got a lot longer than I, I really thought it was. Now, in some ways, I think Paul was right here. He's ready to wrap it up. But, but, then, but then he got reminded of some things, and the Spirit of God knew better, and he went, he went on. Um, and this isn't the first time he's done this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it's another time he did it. He says in chapter, he's got five chapters in the Bible and in that book, and finally comes in chapter 4, verse 1. But I think, if anything, this does change the subject. Because at this point, the epistle does take a turn. Um, the first two chapters, Paul had expressed his joy in the gospel. He expressed his joy in the work that God was doing among those in Philippi. He explained his circumstances in his imprisonment. He has exhorted those in Philippi chapter 1, verse 27 to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the Gospel of Christ. He then set forth Jesus Himself, Timothy and Epaphroditus, of those who are living a selfless life of how to walk in humility, to seek this unity together. And so He's talked a lot about the Gospel. He's rejoiced in the Gospel. He's seen its fruits, but He's never really defined the Gospel or talked about it a lot. And... Um, Though he'd spoken about it many times, though he'd illustrated it many times, in chapter 3, what we see is Paul explaining the gospel. 
In fact, chapter 3, verse 9 is about as clear of, of any verse in all the Bible about the gospel. And so if you're confused about what the gospel is this morning, chapter 3, verse 9 really talks about what it is. Paul says that I may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Now that's the gospel. That is the good news. That by faith in Jesus Christ, His perfect righteousness upon the cross, we can obtain His righteousness. Not derived from the law, not derived from our good deeds, but solely by faith in Jesus. That's what verse 9 says. That I may be found in Jesus, not having this righteousness which is mine derived from the law, but I have this righteousness which comes from God through Jesus on the basis of faith. And that's the good news. And if you grasp that, your world will be changed. That God gives us righteousness. And this message is as old as the Bible itself. I think about um, Genesis 15. The Lord appeared to Abraham, told him he would have a son. At this point, Abraham's pretty old. And uh, he said, how am I going to have a son? And, and the Lord said, well, let, let me just take you outside. And the Lord took him outside and says, you, you just, just see all the stars. Why don't you count them? If you can, was the idea. Like you couldn't count them if you tried. Just try counting them. It says, so shall your descendants be. And Abraham contemplated his body, how old he was, as good as dead, and contemplated God and His power, and he believed. And do you remember what the Lord did with Abraham's faith? He reckoned it to him as righteousness. That's the words. In other words, when, when Abraham believed, God then reckoned. This is like an accounting term. Okay? Lance, our accountant, can figure this out. All right? This is, he, he gives us his righteousness. So, so the faith is on the one side and He then gives us the righteousness on the other. Or you can say this is that, that when we believe, like so, so he, I'm, I'm playing God a little bit. People are down there. And when they believe in Jesus, what, what God does is He kind of takes that faith coming up and He turns as He looks down. He kind of looking backwards through faith and He sees righteousness in us. That's the gospel. Is it by believing we're made righteous in God? It's what Philippians three nine is about. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And like Abraham, we believe, and like God with Abraham, he reckons and he counts us righteous. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And that's what God that's what Paul is going to expound in chapter three that we'll be looking at for the next month and a half or two months or so. And this news is so good. You know, I've, I've been thinking about this for some time now, a, a little bit about, about the people who reject the gospel. I just, I just can't understand why they do. <clears throat> I mean, I can theologically, okay, but I'm, I'm, I'm kind of thinking just from a real practical way. You know, we speak to people about how we're sinners and we're, we're dead in our sin and we're destined to perish. And, and then we say, Jesus came and He died upon a cross for our sins. So that what we need to do is simply believe in Jesus and, and all our sins are wiped away and we get His righteousness 
And furthermore, when we believe in Jesus, He brings us into His family, He unites us with Him, and we can look forward to an eternity of joy in His presence. It doesn't cost anything. It just says we need to just denounce ourselves, basically. We need to look to Christ and say, God, you've done it all. I'm just looking to you. And we denounce our sin. We trust in Christ. He becomes ours. And the God of the universe takes us and protects us and gives us all that we will ever need. And I can't tell you how many times I've told people that. And they just don't believe. They're just, you know, living their own life with their sin and their problems and the repercussions of everything that their sin brings. I'm like, no, oh, why don't you come in? It's warm in here. You know what? But they're outside. They're shivering in the cold. And they say, oh. And they say, man, it's cold out here. Okay. Man, I got all these problems. You know, I got these problems with my kids. I got this problem with my marriage. I got these problems with money. And I got this. Oh, it's cold out here. And we say, come on in. Come on in where it's warm. And they say, oh, it's cold out here. And they just won't. Go in where there's blessing. That doesn't mean you're going to solve all your problems. Okay? It doesn't mean that you're going to, you know, have, your life isn't going to be all hunky-dory because there's a lot of things about life that's, that's pretty crummy. However, you're going to be warm and be able to see a picture of that. And, and I, in many regards, I just don't understand why people don't believe. Now, Theologically, I know enough theology. It's the hardness of their heart. And I know that it's only God who's got to change the heart. So I've been praying. I've been praying for God to open hearts that they might see. They might come in where it's warm. Rather than groveling in all their problems. Sin-infested problems that come. <clears throat> well, there's the good news. It is, And that's what we're going to talk about in chapter 3. As we come... Um, my message this morning is called The Basics. It's what Paul's doing in 1 through 3. I, I do believe that... I'm trying to wrap this around inspiration. I do believe Paul says, okay, I, th- I, think we're, I think we're done. And so he just starts wrapping things up, things that are most important. And by the way, actually, it's this phrase at the end of verse 4, um, we, verse 3, we put no confidence in the flesh. I think then that, that just launches him to start talking then about the gospel. He starts going on this big, huge rabbit trail. Or as uh, Chris has a friend, the bunny trail is what he goes on this whole chapter, just talking about that, what it means. But he's just talking about the real basic things, the, the basics of, of like last instructions, what he has to say. So three verses this morning, three points, real simple, each of them. My first point is this, rejoice. <clears throat> command is clear. The command says, chapter 3, verse 1, Finally, my brethren, he loves these people, rejoice in the Lord. Um, we are to find our happiness, our contentment, our pleasure, our gladness, our satisfaction, our cheerfulness in the Lord. Now, many people think that joy, rejoicing, is an uncontrolled emotion. Something that just comes upon you when something good happens to you, right? The feeling you have when you're on vacation. Like we're on the beach in Cancun. <laughs> oh, I'm rejoicing today. Right? And what happened was it was, it was taking you out of, of, of Illinois and putting you there that gave you that inflicted rejoicing upon you. 
Or people think that joy is the, the feeling you have when your daughter comes home from college after not having seen her for two months, right? And um, there's a joy there. But people think that it's just this, this feeling that because of circumstance it comes upon you. Oh, I can rejoice. Or that, that feeling you have when someone tells you a job well done. Like they told you that, and that with that comes this self-satisfaction. You're like, oh, thank you. I'm rejoicing in that. Or, or maybe when you get your tax return back, and, and you get a big chunk of cash in the mail, a check in the mail, you're like, oh. It's like, it's like that brings the rejoicing. But note here, though, we are commanded to rejoice. We are commanded to have joy in our hearts. Paul doesn't say, when good things happen, have joy in your hearts. No, we are commanded. Now, this isn't the only time in the Bible where such a command uh, would take place. Uh, turn over to chapter 4, verse 4. Look at twice in the same verse. Rejoice in the Lord. There it is, the same exact phrase, the same exact word. Rejoice in the Lord always. This isn't, this isn't just a, a Sunday morning command. Okay, this is an always command. This is a, a 24-7, 365 command. And he says it again. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say to you, rejoice. This is a command that comes upon us. And it's not just Paul. Paul isn't the only one saying this. Also, Jesus said this as well. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, verse 12, he, Jesus said, rejoice and be glad. And you might think, well, when things go well for me, right? I'm going to rejoice and be glad, right? Listen to the context. Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What's that context? Context is things are pretty bad externally. You're following the Lord, right? So you're rejoicing in the Lord. In fact, that's the only way you're going to find rejoicing in the Lord when you're imprisoned or when you're flogged or when you're beaten or when you're ridiculed. You're not going to find joy in these circumstances which have come. The circumstances are actually going to come and work anti-joy. But you can find your joy in the Lord. And I think, that's the key even of this phrase here. Chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, we rather rejoice in the Lord. In the Lord is how we can rejoice at all times. Now, it wasn't just Paul. It wasn't just Jesus. This was totally Old Testament as well. Psalm 37, verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself. Find your joy and delight and satisfaction in the Lord. And failure to do this brought the Israelites some pretty dire consequences. Listen, Deuteronomy 28, 47 through 48. This is Deuteronomy 28. Okay, so this is Moses, his last year, talking to the people of Israel, counseling them his final sermons to these people. And he said this, Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart for the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger, in thirst, in nakedness, and in the lack of all things, and He will put an iron yoke on your neck until He has destroyed you. In other words, because you didn't serve the Lord with gladness and with joy, consequences are coming in your life. Because God isn't glorified by begrudging service to Him. God is, let's say it together, most glorified in us when we are most 
satisfied in Him, right? And we find our joy and delight in the Lord. That's when He's most glorified. And because the Israelites weren't serving with a joy and glad heart, rather grumbling at the Red Sea, and grumbling when the water was bitter, and grumbling when they had no food, and grumbling when they had no water, and grumbling when Moses didn't come back down from Mount Sinai in a time, according to their timetable, quick enough for them. Or they grumble when they were having, getting tired of their manna. They, they grumble when they heard about how large the people were in Canaan. And, and God just says, enough is enough is enough. We need to serve the Lord with a, a joyful and glad heart. That's why He commands us to do that. Psalm 100. Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Shout joyfully. Serve the Lord with gladness. With a, with a smile on your face and a deep joy in your heart. Come before Him with joyful singing. There's the, there's the modeling of the, the, the joy that we ought to have. Worship Him. Serve Him with gladness. Not begrudgingly. That's why chapter 2, verse 14 is in the book of Philippians. This book all about rejoicing. Rejoicing in the Gospel. Don't complain. Because we need to have this, this joy that, that is in us. And, and we've seen so well. Paul models this so well throughout the book of, of Philippians. In fact, I hardly need to remind you the theme of Philippians is rejoice in the Gospel. And week in, week out, you've had that on overhead. And indeed, this is the book of of Philippians. It is filled with joy and rejoicing. Fourteen times in these four chapters, joy or rejoice is mentioned here in the Bible. Joy and rejoice in in English are two different words. You hear rejoice, joy. You can hear those two Things, but joy is the noun, rejoice is the verb, they are the same. Joy is karos, rejoice is kairo. They would have heard the same things, the, the original Greek hearers would have. And, and this, this, this theme of joy is all throughout the book of Philippians. That's why it's often called the epistle of joy. Because Paul's joy just exudes, the joy of Epaphroditus or Timothy just exudes out of here. And then we have these explicit commands. And now, one thing is often missed, though, and I've tried to pull out by pulling it, rejoice in the gospel. It's not just joy to joy. I think it really shows itself out in joy in the gospel, particularly here in the first half of the book of Philippians. Um, in fact, gospel's mentioned nine times in these four chapters. To give, to give you an idea of context, the book of Romans, which is all about the gospel, the word occurs only ten times. It just it's, Paul is just bringing this word up, bringing this word up, bringing this word up. Right? Romans is four times as long as Philippians. Right? Condensed is the, the highest percentage. It's not just the mere mention of the word that 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 means anything per se, because the whole book of Romans is certainly about it. But when you mention it so many times, I think that's why rejoice in the gospel is there. And and um, you find the gospel is often the reason for rejoicing and being happy. Because he's not just saying be happy, but be happy in the work of Christ. Be happy in the Lord of everything that God has done for us. In fact, Paul, we see him how happy and joyful he was when God was working through others through the gospel. Well, it's in chapter 1 where he offered his joyful, thankful prayer in view of how they had participated in the gospel. In chapter 1, verse 18, Paul's rejoicing. You see how the gospel's spreading, even in his imprisonment. He says, yes, I rejoice and I will rejoice. In chapter 2, he says, make my joy complete by being a united church. 
Right? Same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Chapter 2, verse 17, Paul finds joy in willingly pouring himself out for the Philippians. This is what the Gospel does. It, 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 God has done so much for us, we willingly pour ourselves out. And last week we saw that even the joy of sending back Epaphroditus who risked his life ultimately for the joy of the Philippians. And right here we get the same thing, rejoice. Rejoicing in the Lord, which really is the same thing as rejoicing in the Gospel. Because the only reason we can rejoice in the Lord is because we're rightly related to Him through the Gospel. I mean, apart from the Gospel, any attitude we have before the Lord is terror and dread. But it's through the Gospel our attitude with the Lord is joy and thanksgiving and delight. And, and, and this isn't anything new. It's been repeated in fact, it's, it's old. Paul said, I'll never tire of reminding you of these things. Look, look at the second half of verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. So what he's saying here is, I'm telling you, rejoice in the Lord. It's a little bit like when Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. The disciples knew that command. He says, but this is, this is new. But it's pretty old. It's an old command. And here he's saying, listen, I'm never going to tire of writing to you these same things because it's, it, I'm not tiring and it is good for you because we need reminders. I was talking to somebody this week, um, just talking about the dynamics of church and Sunday morning and, and just the joy of being with us here at Rock Valley Bible Church and um, being amongst everybody. There's, there's, there's a clarity that comes in, um, in being here among us and thinking about Christ and how all it is. Sometimes that comes in small groups. Sometimes that comes in, in, in even uh, reading sermons. I know Charles Spurgeon does that a lot for me. When I'm re- I just, just get some crystal clarity on what's going on. But then sometimes, right, we, we step away from the church gathering and then we just we forget. We're like, oh, but it's, it's, not, it's not difficult. And, and what happens, we need to come and be reminded of this again and again and again, it's part of my job as a pastor is to remind you again and again. Second Timothy chapter two, verse eight. Paul writes to Timothy, the same Timothy we looked at a couple weeks ago. And, and Timothy's been around. He's got a kindred spirit with Paul. And one of the things that Paul says, this is amazing. This is his last letter to Timothy. He says, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Like, of course, you're going to remember Jesus. I mean, that's like the center of his ministry. And yet Paul reminded him of it. Because he will never tire of it. And we've been in the book of Philippians for five months. You might be getting tired of it. You might be getting tired of looking at the old slide above. But listen, it's no trouble for me because it's the heart and soul of our faith that we would rejoice in the Gospel. Now, and Paul says it's no trouble for him to write the same things again. Right? Okay, what's he referring to? It could be everything in chapters 1 and 2. That's a possibility. It could be some other things that he had written to them. Maybe there are previous letters to the Philippians. He's going to repeat that. Maybe he's writing the same things that he has taught to them. We, we don't exactly know, but we do know that he's had a bunch of ongoing interaction with those in Philippi. He planted a church during his second missionary journey. During that same journey, when he went to Thessalonica, they're sending him gifts, and he's probably sending him thank you notes back, just like Philippians. Maybe not, not just like Philippians, but sending some kind of written correspondence back. Um, a few years later, the third missionary journey, Paul traveled through Philippi, 
and certainly had more opportunities to be with them, to teach them. And so it's kind of like maybe he's a he's a broken record, if you will, just just telling him the same things again. He's writing the same things again. And certainly we know that when he was in Philippi, the flavor of his visit was much like the flavor of his visit to the Corinthians when he said, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. When he was there among the Corinthians, it was the Gospel that was the main thing what he was trying to make known to them. It was all about the first importance that Christ died for his sins according to Scripture, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. At a later point in Paul's ministry, he's in Rome right now, but he'll be away from Rome. He writes back to the Romans. Think about what he says. He says, always in my prayers, I'm making a request. This is Romans 1, 10 through 15. If perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you, for I long to see you. And, and then by verse 15, he says, for I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. And it's like, well, he's, he's in Rome right now, and he's like eager to preach the gospel. Don't they know the gospel? They do, but they need to be reminded. We all need to be reminded of the gospel that's proclaimed over and over again, repeated, applying giving reason to rejoice. And the more we repeat it, the more you understand it, the more you comprehend it, the more you see it's multifaceted, the, the more you're going to have reason to rejoice. So you rejoice in the Gospel? Are you rejoicing in the Gospel? That's the call of verse 1, is to rejoice in the Lord, but the only way to rejoice in the Lord is through the Gospel. Okay, let's, let's now look at verse 2. Verse 1 is, beware, is um, rejoice... Verse 2 is beware. Let me just read it for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. Now, I, I trust you can see where I get my point. It's a word repeated three times. Beware. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. He does this for emphasis. Beware. Beware. Beware if you have the ESV, right? Look out. Look out. Look out. The repetition means it's serious business. I mean, if you go to a home, right, and, and you come up to the door and you uh, maybe knock on the door, ring the doorbell, and there's this little sign kind of in the corner of it that says, Beware of dog. And then you ring the doorbell and when you hear, yip, 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 you're like, that's not very much warning. But suppose you go to another house and they got chain link fence all around the front yard. And they have about three or four signs on the front and they have signs on the door, right? That say, beware of dog. Um, you're going to be a lot slower approaching that house. Like, where's the dog? Where, where is it? Because you're going to be aware. Because of the multitudes of warnings. And so likewise here, Paul repeating this, beware, 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 says there's great danger ahead. Now, it is interesting here in verse 2, until this point, the letter of Philippians has been very positive. Um, he's encouraged by the Philippians, he's encouraged how the gospel's worked in the Philippians, he's encouraged how the gospel spread through the Philippians, he's encouraged by Timothy and Epaphroditus and their love for those in Philippi. The only negative thing comes in chapter 1, verse 15, where you got these people preaching Christ even from envy and strife, thinking to cause Paul distress in his imprisonment. And, um, but Paul, even there, twisted it good. He said, what then? 
Only that never way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. He says, you know, as long as the gospel is being proclaimed, as long as Christ is being proclaimed, I can rejoice in that, even if the motives are, are crummy. But now things totally change. Paul's giving some solemn warnings to, some peop- to those in Philippi. And, and thus, I think the people here of chapter 1 are different than the people of chapter 3. Because here there's like no toleration. It is like beware, stay away. They will bite and hurt you. Because in chapter 1 he showed some toleration, but here there is zero tolerance. Because these guys, I believe, are rotten to the core. They got their theology wrong and their life is wrong and those they influence walk in those ways. And so I think what verse 2 is talking about is about how the gospel makes all the difference. Because when it comes to the Apostle Paul, if you get the gospel right, you got a lot of grace. Even if you got bad motives, you're getting the gospel right. You're, if you get the gospel wrong, wrath and fire, indignation, warrant. Stay away from those guys. Uh, It reminds me of Galatians 1. Paul says, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a, and I put, a different gospel. He says, which is really not another. So it's not really another gospel. But there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. Even, as I said before, so I say again, if a man is preaching to your gospel contrary to what you've received, he is to be accursed. Paul even says, if we come and preach something different, may God strike us dead. May we spend eternity in the deepest hell. Even if an angel should come and like change God's plan, right? And preach something else. He says, that is not good. So sensitive was Paul to the Gospel, that he had harsh words like that. Because the Gospel is the main thing and you can't touch the main thing. In verse 2, Paul describes these men who have distorted the main thing. He uses three descriptions. These men have got the Gospel wrong. He calls them dogs. He calls them evil workers. He calls them false circumcision. I, I do believe all three of these descriptions are talking about the same group of people. And going through these terms this morning, I do think that it's most helpful for us to do so in reverse order because the third term helps identify these men. The second term exposes these men. And the first term helps us to understand how we are to deal with these men, how our attitude towards them, how much they are to be despised. So let's, let's look at how they're identified here. The third one, false circumcision. Now, from that, you can see they're Jews. They've been circumcised in accordance to the law of Moses. I would suspect that they were probably circumcised on the eighth day according to the law, just perfectly. That's what they always did, what was their, their practice. But their circumcision was a, a false circumcision. Now, in contrast, that we see in verse 3, we see that we are the, the true circumcision. Now, there's a, there's a play on words here at the end of 2 and 3, which we'll kind of get into a little bit. If you have a New American Standard with a, a uh, margin notes at all. Uh, they're good that they, they put the, the Greek words here. And the Greek word most commonly used for circumcision is peritome. Peri like perimeter, about. Tome to cut. And if you know about circumcision, it makes sense, right? Cutting around. But this false circumcision, Paul used a different word. The word is katatome. 
Nakata normally means down, or in this place it can mean destructive. So, katatome, down, cutting, destructive cutting, or mutilation could even be a better translation. In fact, this word is used in Leviticus 21, verse 5, of forbidden mutilations of the body. Forbidden cuttings of the body. And, and, and this false circumcision have tried to do the religious thing, but they've done it all wrong. Now, it's not that they have done it wrong physically. I think they've done it physically right. Okay, and, But I think it's all wrong spiritually because of, of the implications and the meanings of this circumcision. They've added circumcision to the requirements for salvation. This is a common heresy on New, Test- New Testament times. and Paul attacked it head on. Right? When we were, we've been reading through the book of Acts on Sunday morning and Darren, when he got to chapter 15, said this is the most important chapter of the Bible. And so we had some discussion about that. And uh, it does really talk about maybe the most important event in the history of the church recording us with that. And so thereby, I think, Darren, you're right. You can call it the most important chapter of the Bible. Where it is, right? Do you need to be circumcised to be saved? And there's a whole group of people saying, yes, you need to be circumcised to be saved. These Gentiles coming in, they need to be circumcised to be saved. And Paul said, no, you don't need to be circumcised to be saved. And this big rift, this big discussion, what are they going to do? And they decided at the end, no, you do not need to be circumcised to be saved. Because if you take circumcision, as Galatians 5.2 says, if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. So what Paul is saying, if, if you receive circumcision as if you need to, you believe in Jesus, now you, you re- receive this as necessary for your salvation, he says this, Galatians 5.3, I testify again to every man who receives circumcision, he's under obligation to keep the whole law. Now, now that might juxtapose according to Philippians 3 verse 9, right? That, that by faith we get this righteousness which is apart from the law. But he says, if you receive circumcision, you just take what you you just take that out the door and now you're going to go the law route to try to make yourself right with God. And that's never going to happen. And and again, Paul's not talking about whether you're physically circumcised or not. He's talking about whether you believe in some ways that this circumcision is a necessary requirement for God to forgive you and grant you his forgiving grace through Jesus. Because here's why. If you do that, then all of a sudden you said, okay, I'm going to start keeping the law. And Romans 3.20 says, by the works of a law, no flesh should be justified and you'd be condemned. And so that's who these people are. They're often called Judaizers. Professing Christians who say you just need to come under this law, legal code here to, to kind of line up to, to, to be pleasing to God. I just say this, church family, beware of anyone who adds anything to the gospel. It is a warning of the deepest degree. Now, today, the danger is not circumcision. We live 2,000 years later. That was resolved in Acts 15. Not really, didn't crept up a little bit, not, not really a lot. But today, the issue is baptism. Oh, in order to be saved, you have to be baptized. As if, that's what washes and cleanses away your sin. And I just say this, in the spirit of Galatians 5.2, if you receive baptism in that way, thinking that that is washing away your sin, Christ is of no benefit to you because you're trying to obtain that with a righteousness that's through your works. 
Or today that the danger is circumcision. Uh, I'm sorry, is confirmation, right? You you got to go through the codes of the church. You have to go through this official teaching. You got to be able to sign your line. You've got to have the the church confirm that you're a Christian. Or maybe today the danger is the the whole code of legal ethics. Right? You you become a Christian, wonderful. Now let's talk about discipleship and everything you need to do. And uh, there, there's a lot there's a lot good in some of those legal code of, of ethics, but they can easily mix with, oh, someone's not doing that. I'm not really sure they're a Christian or not because they just slip that in there that that's what you have to do to be a Christian, and it's not. You simply believe in Christ and you get overwhelmed with His blessings. Maybe a lot of self-help books run into this as well. I mean, those, those cover shells. How can I do this? How can I be better? How can I be? And, and any time it just says you can work it up within. You can find, that's like anti-gospel. And I say, church family, run away from that stuff. Don't add anything to the glorious gospel. Because that's what was happening here. This false circumcision. These people were adding to the gospel. And Paul's whole burden here is that, no, verse 4, we're the true circumcision. We don't add anything to the gospel. Let me show you how we don't add anything to the gospel. And in fact, even beginning in chapter, in chapter 3, verse 12, he's going to talk about his sanctification. Yes, there is a way where I'm perfect. Because I'm standing for God, I've got His righteousness. But that doesn't mean license. It doesn't mean I do what I want. No, he says I press on towards the goal. I, I, I keep working. And so he balances this thing about how can you be forgiven totally and yet still pursue God in obedience. And he, he puts these things on and that's why the finally got expanded here in chapter 3. Well, there's the, the first false circumcision identifies these. These are Judaizers, same people I spoke about in Acts 15, same people that Paul is addressing in the book of Galatians. Okay, second, we're going up. Beware of the evil workers. Now, it's not, it's not that their evil is readily apparent. I mean, if you're an evil worker, you don't say, hey, I'm the evil worker, right? That's why I wear all black and wear these red horns, right? That's, that's me, all right? Ah, bring your kids here and I'll make them really mad and mean. I'll teach them and train them in the ways of hate and evil. That's, that's, not, that's not how they do, right? Satan disguised himself, an angel of light, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. Abortion clinics call themselves women health centers. Corrupt politicians will be, have photo ops kissing babies and will make known how much they help children. But as much as workers maybe look good on the outside, it's all a, a farce and a scam. These people, like they're Judaizers, they love the law. They want to protect the law. I think they were just like the Pharisees of old. And Jesus said of them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs. And if you've been to Israel, you know what he's talking about. Or if you've seen pictures in Israel, they, the, the ground is too hard to bury the casket. So they put them up ground and they're just these stone white and they're painted white. And they're beautiful along the mountainside. And he says, you're like whitewashed tombs that look beautiful on the outside, wonderful, which appear on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear you're righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You think about how much time did Jesus have with the Pharisees? About, about that much. Zero. How much time did Paul have for these sorts of people? Not very much. And I say you should not have much time with 
these sorts of people either. But I'm amazed at how many times corruption of false teachers gets exposed. And, you know, it, it, it happens, particularly in the health, wealth, prosperity movement. I mean, that's where it's just total glaring. They, they come and they look picture perfect and they're all slicked back. And yet then they're exposed that their marriages are a wreck, first of all. Okay. And, and they're exposed that, that, you know what, this is where people live on this multi-million dollar ranch. And they got their private jets and they got some tax problems with the IRS who's kind of going after them. And they're, they're living extravagantly while the people are living in poverty. And, And they tie up heavy burdens for people and lay it on men's shoulders. They themselves unwilling to move a finger. And as as press gets around that and they get exposed, what happens? They just continue right along. And all these people just continue to follow them. I'm amazed at that. I'm amazed. I've talked personally with people, warned people about particular false readings. You got that book? Don't, Don't read that book. Because, you know, he's teaching a false gospel. And it's not right. And weeks later, months later, what do I find out? Oh, I was just reading this book and it's so good. I'm like, no! Run from those books! I'm just amazed. And Paul says this. It has nothing to do with that. If you... If you just sniff of people adding just, you need to do this, or your self-help like you can do it, rather than pointing them into the gospel which fruits and powers everything, run far away. Because ultimately they're evil workers. They're not working good in your hearts. What's good in your hearts is when the gospel's told and you're, you then respond to the gospel like Paul does at the end of chapter 3. And, and we'll get into what sanctification is um, how it's uh, gospel-fueled, spirit-empowered. Help me, Yvonne. I forget exactly. Um, we'll, we'll talk about how, how genuine sanctification is started and powered by the gospel. It's empowered spiritually, but there is full effort in that. And Paul balances those two things at the end of chapter 3 in a, in a great way. But these evil teachers, stay away. All right. How are we supposed to look at these people? Dogs. They are dogs. Beware of the dogs. This shows us how we're supposed to think of them. They've been identified as being false teachers. They have been um, exposed as being evil workers. And now this is how we're supposed to treat them. We should think of them as dogs. Now, when we think about dogs, we think about something different. Some of you may think about something different than I think as well. All right? But when we think about dogs, we think about these adorable playthings. Um, they can do tricks for food. Or we think about the German shepherd who's highly trained, right? On the master's command. We'll, we'll go in and we'll help law enforcement officials. Or we will think of the help dog providing encouragement, sight for the blind. Or for them providing emotional help to their senior citizens. Or of them protecting a home with their bark and bite. And so, in all these ways, we see them generally as a, as a very good thing. Not so the ancient world. Right? When we think of dogs, we think of watchdogs. Right? When they think of dogs, they thought of scavenger dogs. This nuisance. Rather than being a help, they were a nuisance. I mean, scavengers. What are scavengers today? Like vultures. We don't, you like vultures? Who, who have you got a pet vulture? Vultures are like those you know, mangy animals that just eat dead flesh. Well, here's news for you. That's what the dogs ate. 
They just ate the scraps that you, you threw out. In fact, the big curse of Jezebel is that she was going to be eaten by the dogs. Threw her body out there and then the dogs would come and eat her. In the ancient world, very little pest control. Didn't have dog catchers driving around. Didn't have animal shelters. And so the dogs just kind of walked around. If you've been to a foreign land, like I've been to India and Nepal, these dogs just kind of trot around and kind of run around. I'm sure that's true lots of other places. Indonesia? Are they in Indonesia? Yeah, some places, you know, if they, some places they aren't, but Hindu worlds, maybe Muslim worlds, they're, they're all around. And it's kind of scary. Now, sometimes they're ferocious and will attack, and sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're just, just dirtying things up and making this nuisance. I'm not sure. But in any rate, they are despised. In fact, you think about how the Bible uses the word dog referring to a person, and they are, it's a, it's a derogatory word. And Goliath saw little David had come home, come to fight against him. He said, am I a dog that you've come to me with sticks? Like, is it that bad? Are you not respecting me? Are you considering me a dog? To identify yourself with a dog was a sign of humility. It's when Mephibosheth came and sat before David. He said, I'm, I'm just a dog in your sight. I'm, I have no rights. I am nothing. When his enemies were surrounding David, he wrote, For dogs have surrounded me, Psalm 22. Thinking about when all the evil people, foreshadowing when all the evil people would surround Christ at his death. And I just say this, that dogs in this perspective should be despised. They should be hated. They should be, in some regards, despised as scum. When you have people adding to the gospel who are actually working evil in their life. And so, one commentator said this, For the Jews, the term dog had a distinctly religious sense. It referred to the Gentiles, those people outside the covenant community. They were considered ritually unclean, like, oh, I mean, think about a Jew as we're in, right? We're the ones who can come in the temple. We have kept the law. But you Gentiles, no, God hasn't promised anything to you. Get away from here. Even you saw that when the Syrophoenician woman came, the disciples were like, get away from here, get away from here. But she understood her position. She said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat from the table scraps. But the Jews saw dogs as totally despised. They saw the Gentiles. And Paul, therefore, the commentator writes, is making a startling point. The great reversal brought about by Christ means that it's the Judaizers now who are regarded as Gentiles. Those who would want to keep the law, he says, it's not, it's not how it is. So you should look at them as dogs. Okay, my admonition to you then is just beware. Stay away. Danger lurks. Eternity is at stake. All right, finally, finally, let's come to my, my third point here this morning. Rejoice in the Lord. And this, it's really finally, okay? Okay, this, I'm not just... 60% through my sermon. We're, we got five minutes to go. I'll just go fast. We have rejoice, beware, be real. Verse 3, For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, when I say be real, um, I, I'm not so much talking about like just be open and honest. I, I guess I'm talking about in light of the false circumcision and in light of the true circumcision, now verse 3 starts, for we are the true circumcision, or we are the circumcision, right? We're the real thing. So be the real deal. You say, well, what, what's the real deal like? Well, thanks for asking, because Paul gives us three characteristics of the real deal, what the circumcision is. These are genuine believers. And I just put this out there. Is this where you are? This, because 
Because this isn't the evil workers or the false circumcision. This is the true circumcision who is like this. Three characteristics. Worship in the Spirit of God. Glory in Christ Jesus. Put no confidence in the flesh. And um, we'll work through these. We'll work through these in order. And I just say, put these up according to your life. Just say, am I? How's my life? Am I worshiping in the Spirit of God? Am I, am I glorying in Christ Jesus? Am I putting no confidence in the flesh? So, let, let's go. Okay, worship in the Spirit of God. I, I think the contrast here is worshiping according to human traditions or according to some external rite or some, some physical thing. But, but the idea here is worshiping in the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit comes and dwells among the believers, creates in us a, a longing that's a genuine spiritual Heart of worship to the Lord. He's talking about authentic worship that's empowered by the Holy Spirit, that is engaged in your inner spirit. That's the essence of New Testament worship. It's not the external rituals. It's not the external place. That's why the early Christians met in the tombs because the Romans wouldn't go down into the tombs. They thought they were unclean. The Christians knew, well, at least we're safe here. At least we can worship here. And it's not about the externals. It's about the internal heart. And they could worship the Lord any place. And we ought to be able to worship the Lord in any place because of the heart that's been transformed by the Spirit of God that worships in spirit and truth. And Jesus prophesied of such worship when meeting with the woman at the well. You remember that? That she had five husbands and the one she had now wasn't even her husband, but they're living together in sin. And as soon as she starts to screw a little bit onto her sin, she's, oh, oh, oh where's the place to worship? Because we say here in Mount Gerizim and... You guys say to Mount Moriah in Jerusalem, where is the right way? And, and Jesus said, you know, it's not about the location. It's all about your heart. John 4, women, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain, Gerizim, right where they were, Samaria, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We worship we, what we know, salvations of the Jews. It's basically saying, Gerizim is not the place you don't know God. Jerusalem is the place because the Jews are knowers of God. But an hour is coming... And now it is, because the Messiah is here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And I think Jesus' words capture the heart of Paul. Genuine worshipers are going to worship in the spirit. They're going to worship the Lord according to truth. And so as you come to Rock Valley Bible Church, is that, is that how you're coming? In the, worshiping in the spirit, or are you, are you caught up in the externals? Or you're letting the Spirit of God dwell in you. I may be seeking the Spirit of God beforehand and saying, God, help me to engage in you in worship today. Work through me. Are you doing that? Because that's what Christians do. That's one of the signs of Christians. And it's not just about singing, okay? But it's about all that you do, giving the glory to God through the power of the Spirit. Okay, second, move on. <clears throat> glory in Christ Jesus. Literally, Paul says here to boast in Christ Jesus. In other words, Jesus has become everything to believers. Everything. And so now we boast in that. I mean, who boasts today? Professors boast of their intellect. And athletes boast of their athletic ability. And businessmen boast of their financial portfolios. But not the case with godly men. And godly women. Long ago, Jeremiah said this way, Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. 
right? So professor and athlete and businessman, don't boast in those things, but let him who boasts boast in this. That he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who executes loving kindness, justice and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things. And there's just talking about the gospel, that, that God is one of loving kindness, yet he will execute his judgment and righteousness. But he's a gracious God. I'm going to boast that I know the Lord. And when you come to believe in Christ and all that he's accomplished, you're really going to, you're going to boast in Christ. You're not going to boast in your circumcision. You're not going to boast in keeping the Mosaic Law or your participation in the Mass or your perfect attendance in Sunday school or various other works that you might concoct wherever you are. It's all what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. It's through His death He did what we could never do. He redeemed us with His blood. He's, he's reconciled us to the Father. He's adopted us as His children. He's given us of His Spirit and He's promised to keep us forever. I mean, what else do you want? What else are you going to boast of? Yeah, look at my 401k. Look at that. That will go away. Oh, look at how fast I can run. <laughs> Wait till you get to be 46, kids, and you won't run so fast anymore. Paul went even so far as to say this, May it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, Galatians 6.4. Boasting in Jesus, lifting Him up, saying Christ is the reason why I live and move and have my being. He is my everything. It's a bit what Jesus says. He wants to come after me. He must deny Himself. It's not me anymore. It's, it's Christ. Worship in the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, put no confidence in the flesh. Well, this is my sermon for next week. No confidence in the flesh because, as I mentioned earlier, when he mentions this, no confidence in the flesh, that just launches this whole bunny trail of chapter 3. And the best way to explain no confidence in the flesh is simply to read what Paul says here in verses 4 and following. In fact, my message title next week, I've got it. No confidence in the flesh. This is what a no confidence in the flesh looks like. It looks like this. Paul says, verse 4, Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal of persecuted church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, he says, found blameless. I can boast in law, he says. And we'll pick apart all, all those things next week. And then verse 7 is the kicker. But whatever things, right, religious righteous things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. His whole heart is to, to know Christ, not His works. He's not putting, hey, God, I was a Pharisee. He's not putting any of that up there. He's putting no confidence in the flesh, but He's pursuing the Lord. So is, is, that, is that your heart? How much confidence do you have in the flesh and standing before God? A Christian isn't one who puts little confidence in the flesh, 
A Christian is one who puts zero confidence in the flesh. That means you don't come to God and say, God, I read your Bible today. Look how good I am. Or God, look, I'm praying. Look how good I am. Or you don't say, I've trained my children well. God, look how good I am. You don't say, I'm a pastor, God. Look, that that gives me some kudos, doesn't it? Now listen, we're all on a level surface. We are all flat on the ground. Putting no confidence in the flesh. And anytime any of you rise up a little bit, you've lost it. Don't put confidence in the flesh. Worship in the Spirit of God. Glory in Christ. Put no confidence in the flesh. And so be real. Be the real thing. Be the real circumcision. Church family. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I pray these basics would sink deep into our hearts. Take these words. Help us to discern these evil workers and dogs. False circumcision. And help our hearts and our minds to really, really put no confidence in our flesh before You. God, how how easy that is. I, I pray even for my message next week as we just think about this theme. God, the glory in Christ Jesus. God, may He be our all and may Rock Valley Bible Church be all about the cross, be all about what Christ has accomplished for us. God, we need Your grace and I pray Your Spirit would come. Help us in our worship and our love for You and help conform our minds to these things, we pray. Amen.